And that's where you found yourself this morning, joining with us where we are into a second sermon now about what we feel is a necessary topic, and we hope it to indeed be helpful. Um, So the sermon will take a little bit decidedly different tone. It'll be a little bit different than perhaps you're used to, but I do certainly hope to be helpful in that. Um, What we started last week will kind of continue this morning, and that is a basic assessment uh, and critique of evangelical relationship culture. Um, Again, it's a little bit different that we're not starting with a text and working through the text. We're starting with an idea, and an idea that is pressing, idea that we need to deal with and tackle as believers. Um, So... Ripped out of the headlines, I, I didn't think it was on, but thanks. Um, so ripped out of the headlines, if we were to critique evangelical relationship culture, the basic premise of my argument is that we're coming to emulate culture instead of following biblical truth in our relationships. What it means to be a young woman, what it means to be a young man, and what it means for a young man and a young woman to interact. Um, and, and the problems are, are everywhere. I'm overwhelmed at the data that I want to share with you um, and trying to organize it and trying to narrow it down so that it's helpful to you and you don't get the sense that you're drinking from a fire hydrant. I, 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 do, I want to be helpful. Please engage with me. No more than being on a computer for a couple of moments and boom, hits a, a, a perfect uh, snap, snapshot of what we're dealing with in relationship culture, what you're dealing with. The title is um, this, an article on NBC. Miley Cyrus's split with Liam Hemsworth isn't just celebrity gossip. It's a blow to the patriarchy. So you stop, and there's so many things that are coming at you now (laughs) that you're getting ready to scroll down and begin reading. And you've probably read it. You've looked at it, or you know that Miley is no longer with uh, Liam or whatever. And, 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 the, and, the, and the, the myriad of webbed of relationships and ways that you know that. You know that from your Twitter feed, or you know that from what's trending, or you know that from uh, uh, whatever it was. What? The preached, the preached word, right. <laughs> yeah, get your celebrity gossip here. <laughs> but it's so significant. Let me read for you a, a, a just a one paragraph lifted out of this article about it. Um, as we bridge back to where we're going. The writer says, quote, while men stew in their mess, women are rising. They are taking back control of their lives and their bodies. And they are questioning the foundation of the patriarchy, heterosexuality. This is what has kept them blindly subordinate. For centuries. You think of that just for one moment. As from Miley Cyrus being a prophet of where we should go relationally. Helping us understand how our social mores have kept women oppressed for centuries. All she needed was a music video. A breakup from the right guy in a lesbian encounter at a nightclub. And all of a sudden she is a thought leader. A guru, a person who's finally helping us understand centuries of oppression and what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man 
and how really women don't need us. There's a lot going on there. And it's coming at, like, warp speed. So whether you're happily married today, uh, there's word here for you, perhaps in and out, but there's words here of interest for you. Um, For parents who are raising children, there's a lot of words here for you. For single adult independents, there's a lot here for you to consider as well. Last week, I mentioned the, or perhaps I could say I critiqued, and we're going to pick up on that critique this morning, but the evangelical church's love of the formulaic. This is a problem. When, when we find ourselves in relationship chaos, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, what it means for a man to interact with a woman, uh, and, and, and then we hear Miley Cyrus say, I'll tell you how. And everyone's like, finally. Um, how do we get here? where that's even perceived momentarily as wisdom. But we have our own fault to bear as we bemoan how sad it is to watch our young people lose their moorings. Again, where is a point of contention that we ought to have introspectively and where we need to correct and where we need to go from here is, again, the evangelical church's love of the formulaic. We have for long, long periods of time loved, and we still have a tendency to strongly like, if not love, steps principles, keys, secrets to the Christian life. Things to do to achieve the goal. And this has been reflected in our relationship culture, and it's contributed to how we've gotten where we are. In other words, we've really enjoyed roadmaps. We lay them out for young people, starting in their teen years, Or then we press on the same language to independent adult singles. And as we press on the way in which things ought to be, we give them formulas complete with promises of deliverables. Again, the promise for deliverables. If you do this, then you will have that. Any thoughtful person steps back and says, but who am I and what has happened to me? If I've done that, and I didn't get what was promised. In other words, we have for long seasons of time, and we still do it. Ministers, bloggers, Twitter artists, influencers, create damaging expectations for individuals' futures. Promising them formulaic equations to happiness. And as the relational promises, I think this is where we are currently. If you have breathed oxygen in the last year, you'd probably agree with me. This is where we seem to be relationally. Is that the relationship promises have failed to deliver in many cases. What was promised has simply just not panned out. Again, what then flows from promises that don't deliver? Good faith equations where young people have put their trust in their minister, have followed their youth leaders, listened to parents who otherwise listened to the thought leader and felt like they were being at best helpful. The third law of motion takes effect. That is, for every action, there is an equal and opposite 
reaction. This is where we find ourselves now. The formulaic or the legalistic force that was provided, even in good faith. And I I don't want you to think I'm standing here above it or somehow looking down and criticizing all those who have gone before me. I'm, I'm definitely, if you, if you know anything of me, many of you do, some more than others, but I am not that guy. Um, I, 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 I tend to take up post in the past and, and, and live there as best as I can. So I'm not critiquing what has gone on as though I'm somehow separated out. I'm saying we're all together, the church of Christ, and we need wisdom to go forward and correct. But to be honest about it, the formulaic and the legalistic force is being met with the opposite, which is the reactionary force of what is known as freedom, or what I would probably coin license. Now, again, um, if I could, there's another quote from an article, and this is the article of, of, as I say, for every action, there is an equal and opposing reaction, and this is where we are, yet another headline. The article is entitled this, quote, Their generation was shamed by purity culture. Here's what they're building in its place. So, so, right? so, so here's the critique. This is what happened to all these young people. They were shamed in purity culture. While we wait for that, as the jury kind of and the, and the troops mobilize and the call-out culture gets established, watch this huge movement over here to what is the opposite and forceful reaction to it all. So this author steps back and assesses the map, and he says, this, if I could, this is what happened to them in A, they got shamed, and I can now step back and objectively view it and say, B, this is what they're building in its place. What is it? The author comments that it is this, quote, The no-shame movement, as well as other hashtags, like, quote, uh, uh, hashtag, sorry, hashtag church two. So the no-shame movement, as well as other hashtags like church two, and online education communities like queer theology, offer space, safe space, For people to identify the effects of shame or fundamentalist upbringings and move toward new understandings of the faith, of the Bible, of sexual identity, and for some, even the actual mechanics of sex. End quote. In other words, they're building in its place a place of generous orthodoxy, a place of free-ranging thought that questions everything that has gone before it. Your parents got everything wrong. Your Your pastor has never given a good word of prudential advice. It was all to somehow work in coordination with the oppression powers that be. And so now we have established a new place for new thought and new thought leaders to rise up, such as queer theology, that help us to understand what it really means to be a man, what it really means to be a young woman. The place where your parents have tread 
in the place of your fundamentalist cranky church is unsafe. Which then it means that young people, and here at Redeemer as well, as we think of it in our own local context, whether it's children like myself raising four or on the age spectrum, independent adult singles, or even in relationship of men and women married folk. It means that we are at least collectively dismissive, if not completely disregarding nearly all prudential wisdom and restraint in relational conduct and purity. Young people won't tolerate it anymore. What is the church doing? Where are we today? Where are you today? And your thoughts of sexual purity, sexual ethics, the patriarchy. If we were to summarize the church, I think, together, and we look at poll after poll after poll done by various uh, Christian outlets, it seems to indicate, and maybe you know this relationally, Maybe with folks that you're interacting with, teenagers, young independent adults, other uh, parents raising other kids and the assessment of how they ought to go about raising them. Maybe you're recognizing that there seems to be a shallow recklessness replacing what was at one point a shallow legalism. We've gone together as the church from legalism Steps, micromanaging tools in youth groups, to emulating culture, which sets the rules of engagement. This has disastrous effects for the family. In her 2017 book, uh, I Perhaps some of you know how the breakdowns work. It's really tricky. Um, if you're X or if you're generation, if you're a millennial, or you're generation X, or, or you're now iGen, it's, it's always give or take a few dates. Let me just zero in on what she offers up. In her book, iGen, she says that the iGen stands for Internet Generation. So that would make you, if you were born in 1995 or up. So probably not a lot of you in here, but who knows? I'm totally guessing. I'm, I'm older than you than I thought, all the time. That, so I, either which way. Some of you might have been born in 2000. I, I don't know, whatever, whatever it was. Um, uh, outside the younger children. Um, anyways, in 2017, her book, iGen, Dr. Jean Twenge, she's a social psychologist. She identifies two activities that are significantly correlated with depression and suicide-related outcomes and young people. Again, why am I noting this? Where the church has gone is our concern as a session here at Redeemer, our thoughts and discussion one with another, and as we assess and pray for others, is the thought that, again, legalism and micromanaging tools have been jettisoned, have been cast out, and what has been filling that vacuum? But emulating culture, and culture is setting the rules. Dr. Jean Twenge, a social psychologist, identifies two activities that are significantly correlated with depression and suicide-related outcomes in young people. What are they? Maybe you could guess them. 
electronic device use, which then she lists as a smartphone, tablet, or computer. And and don't worry, uh, the book doesn't go on to say that everyone has to get rid of their technology. That's not where the book is going, lest you think that I'm way off the reservation and just being cranky. It's not. She doesn't say get rid of it. But, but, but again, she's just assessing. So she writes this piece um, about uh, suicide, particularly in young women, and how since I believe it's 2012, it's been on an upward trajectory at alarming rates. And so during the, during the piece, someone asks her, the, the person, is there anything that you can say correlates, like there's a cause and effect relation between young women and their, and their, and their, uh, uh, their escalating uh, 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 suicide rates and depression rates, and um, uh, is there any correlation between that and, and some causal effect? She locates two pieces, electronic device use and watching TV. When asked why, why zero in on um, uh, electronic device use and watching TV? Why? She comments, because of the content being viewed on the device. You see, the virtual voice of foolishness, the influencers on Instagram, I can't imagine someone in here follows the Kardashians, but you get the idea. It's influencing hundreds of thousands of people. The virtual voice of foolishness presents a distorted and deceitful version of who a woman is. And correspondingly, who a young man is. And how they are to interact one with another. We, not unlike culture, but allowing culture to set the rules of engagement. We, the church of Jesus Christ, are becoming deaf to wisdom and attentive to foolishness. I'll give you one more example if I could. And again, these, these are, this is low-hanging fruit. I didn't dig real deep and work real hard to find them. Because you see them just like I do. They're everywhere. Hopefully you weren't deeply invested and perhaps you didn't even watch. That would be the wise way to go. That's prudential advice number one. Stay away from the bachelorette. See, I didn't work real hard for that. But I note it for you because perhaps um, you realize that uh, that, oddly enough, has become a Christian battleground. The bachelorette. If you've noticed that at all, um, Written by the Christian Post, this article says, The Bachelorette and the Widespread Practice of Premarital Sex Among Christians. The latest season of The Bachelorette, and perhaps you know this by media standards, you've seen the articles or you've seen the headlines. Here's the hope that you didn't watch it. 
The latest season of The Bachelorette laid bare a widespread practice among Christians. Do you hear that? that? That's the opening sentence to the piece. The latest season of The Bachelorette laid bare a widespread practice among Christians. Hyphen, premarital sex. Again, I know the ship left the harbor a long time ago. But we're going to stay on the harbor and signal it back in. This still matters. It goes on to say, but scripture, this is a neat piece, but scripture plainly speaks against sexual activity outside of marriage. So how did they get here? The entire season of The Bachelorette, where Hannah Brown, a 24-year-old professing Christian, tried to find her future husband. That's what the show is about, to those uninitiated. A young woman is picked and, uh, for multiple reasons, and then she's cast off, and there's these guys interviewing to try and be uh, asked to marry her at the end of the episode, or the end of the season. So the entire season of The Bachelorette, where Hannah Brown, a 24-year-old professing Christian, explicitly so, tried to find her, for her future husband. What sparked controversy on a national discussion was when one of the men, Luke Parker, expressed his Christian convictions for purity. Now, again, another tip for free. Prudential advice number two. Do not, as a Christian young man, if that be your confession, go on the bachelorette to find your future spouse. That was it's another good word of advice that would save this young man a lot of Twitter blowback. It just, you know... <laughs> you, Again, some people are like fighting for this Luke guy. Like, come on, man. And then you're like, why is he there? If, if he's this sharp and that explicit about his faith in Christ, how is that his best next, next step forward to find a spouse? Wisdom. The need for clarity. What sparked controversy in a national discussion was one of them, Luke Parker, expresses Christian convictions for purity. Parker told Brown, that is the woman bachelorette, that he wants a wife who believes what he believes when it comes to sex. This is Parker, quote, let's talk about sex and how the marriage bed should be kept pure, he said. Let's say you have had sex with one or multiple of these guys here. I would be wanting to go home. That's, that's the idea. She, then she releases you from your indentured servitude. Like, well, you can go. I'm done with your role. You can take your ball and go home. So he's saying, I would love you to give me that freedom of release if you're promiscuous while you're hanging out. Now, offended and feeling judged, Brown confessed that she had physical relations with other contestants. Drum roll but that Jesus still loves her. As you can imagine, their spat continued on Twitter after the show. The mob was signaled, dog whistles everywhere. People were gathering to shout down, shout out, call out everyone involved. The phrase, so much so that the phrase, quote, Jesus still loves me, is now a coined phrase in the media and social media platforms. Brown is not alone, the article continues, when it comes to Christians engaging in sexual relations and being okay with it before marriage. I'll end the article simply by noting, 
again. A recent study on Christian attitudes towards dating and marriage revealed a broad acceptance for cohabitation and premarital sex and a rejection of traditional gender roles. Surprise, surprise. According to 2014 State of Dating in America report, 61% of Christians said that they would have sex before marriage. One pastor that was interviewed for the study, a pastor in Los Angeles, said that he believes there are three major contributing factors to the decline in purity among believers. First one he lists, a lack of overall Bible reading, lack of mentors, and societal pressure to do likewise. Though some have placed their faith, this is a quote from the pastor. Though some have placed their faith in Jesus, they likely have not engaged in reading the Bible. End quote. Again, as I mentioned last week, if we are through this series, even if we could for this series move the goalpost this much, did you see, did you were able to even see how much? If we were able to help one another move the goalpost this much, we would be doing a service to one another and to the church of Jesus Christ. How can we do, if the tide is so strong and the ship has been out to sea for a long time on something as knuckle-dragging and as archaic as not having sex before you're married, how can we realistically expect to get back there somehow? How can we reestablish wisdom where Miley, our prophet, has told us the real wisdom is casting off heterosexuality. There's your wisdom. Be gender fluid. Make up your own path. Cast off the patriarchy. How can we get back to wisdom to renewing our minds? Step one, as I mentioned, to renew ourselves in wisdom, we need the church as a living organism. And we need the church. And this is, and next week we're going to move into the book of Proverbs. And there we're going, to, we're going to milk the text for all it's worth on proverbial wisdom. That, that's where all the people waiting for the text to explode. That's where we're going. We're going to the book of Proverbs. We're going to read the book of Proverbs for wisdom that we need in an age that is passing away. But as we lay the foundation, we need the church. I want to urge you that you, as a Christian, a professing believer, needs the church as an institution. You need its ministries. You need its provisions. We need, as ministers, as we think of, okay, if a believer and a pilgrim on the way needs the church, then what must we provide them when they show up? We, the church, must be what God ordained us to be. And what is that? It's so unfortunate, but it's true, that we need to help people remember, and ministers included, what the church was ordained to do and be. Let me give you just four of them, just briefly, so that when you come to church, you can think, this is what I'm going to receive. This is what I must receive. And if I don't hear 
I cannot go here. I must receive the word. It must be read to me. And it must be preached to me. I need the sacraments. I need baptism. And I need the supper. I need the word. And I need sacraments. I need prayer. I need the ministry of the church and its prayerfulness for me. I must have that from my ministers, from fellow believers. And I need discipline. I need to be corrected. I need to be nourished. I need to be admonished when times get difficult. I need the organism of the church to be what God ordained it to be. I need word, sacrament, prayer, and discipline. We have so many in evangelicalism today who have become those who love Jesus, but not the church. I think it was a few years ago now that was another thing that was trending, I think, you know, Jesus, not relationship or something, or Jesus, no religion, or something along those lines. Again, to say it perhaps another way is the idea that we have folks who are spiritual, but not religious. I have had the privilege, I think it's a privilege, yeah, it's been a privilege, I can say that confidently when I think about it more deeply. I've had the privilege of going to two different church experiences in the last five weeks. We were, we, were, we were heading to, towards vacation, so we went and worshipped, um, broadly speaking, um, with, with two other churches. And we, we had the spectrum. Our family had the spectrum of what you would consider to be high church and what you'd consider to be low church. We, we, had, we, we went to two of those polar opposites. One, when, when, we, when we say high church, we're talking uh, liturgically, right? So, so that's what you're thinking. We were in a cathedral and it was beautiful, ornate, amazing. Wish we had those kind of digs here. Um, anyway, it was beautiful, um, and it was well executed. So we were there for the high church service. When it came time, the female minister got up, and she read a homily to us that was verbally and syntactically brilliant, written just like a perfect blog post. It was good, but it was hallmarky. No, no bagging on you if you love Hallmark Channel. My mom watches it all the time, so you're not in bad company. But it was, it was, it was, it was, it was Hallmark sentimentality about fear. Largely, it was unhelpful. She told me what I kind of already knew that I just don't need to be fearful every day. And again, perhaps a good reminder at times, but it was weak sauce, and you'd think so too if you were there. We went to, we we, we left, and we talked about it as a family, about about the general sentiment of it all, and and how it lacked uh, what maybe you think I'm doing now, lacking textual support. But give me a few more minutes. (laughs) But 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 it, it lacked it lacked it lacked weightiness. It lacked power. It lacked convincing measure because it was just a really well read, very tightened up blog post that went over great 
with everyone who had gathered. Then we left that situation there, and the following week we went to a totally another end of evangelicalism, which we were the only people like not in billabong board shorts and flip-flops, which again, maybe you dig. That, that, that's cool. Neither here nor there. But, but the expectation was set that we were all heading to the beach, um, which again, most of you dig. I get it. Um, but when we went there, uh, it was non-participatory, right? So it, it, was, it was kind of, we were being led into someone else's private worship. Someone was doing their thing up front. And we were able to watch and be thankful and occasionally maybe join in and participate if we felt led. Um, it, it, was, it was large. It's got seven campuses, one of those kind of like a mega church context. Uh, again, either which way. But I asked one of the people who had been attending for a long time. I said, you know, just out of curiosity, how do you do the Lord's Supper? Like, how do you move all these folks to different, how, how, how's it served? We would be here forever, right? How, how's it working? Um, and they said, you know, I don't know. I said, well, have you been going, like, fairly? Have you been consistent in going for a season of time to fairly help me understand that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think it's ever come up. So, so you have not taken the Lord's Supper in six months, at least, of ministry provided by the church? And the answer is no. You see, maybe that is a contributing factor to why we're all complicit in some of the reactionary forces of license in the life of the church. The church has simply failed to provide what's necessary. Word, sacrament, prayer, and discipline. Finally, to our text, and I'll wind our time down. Next week, we'll be in Proverbs for a long time. But the assessment of our churches would be that which is similar to the text that was read for you. I just want to look at it briefly for just a couple of moments in the life of the church that is contemporary to that which we find in Hebrews 5. I'll read the text for you and just make a couple of observations. Here we find the same assessment of the status of the church here in the first century. And we could have went to the letters uh, in Revelation uh, in the beginning, opening three chapters of the book. Here is a fair assessment of our churches here in the 21st century as well as what we find here in the rebuke that's being leveled against the church. Look at verse 11. About this we have much to say. And that is about, essentially, if you go back through the text and you work through it, it's essentially about redemption. The work of Christ. And so he says, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain. Now notice why it's hard to explain. It's not because it's so tricky and it's hard to follow what you're saying. It's hard to piece together what you're getting at and all of the connecting of the dots. You're right, the content is tricky. It's not that. Notice, it's hard to explain from his vantage point. Why? What's causing the difficulty in hearing? You. You've become dull of hearing. This is an act of becoming. You, you, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. 
So to say things of the gospel, the essential qualities of our faith, what we profess and confess in the Apostles' Creed this morning, we have so much to say about it, but we can't, why not? It's hard to explain. Why? Because you've become, from where you were, you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time, from where you were to where you are, you ought to be teachers. You didn't start from nowhere. You were somewhere. And now you're going somewhere else. You need someone to teach you again, retroactively, go all the way back, kind of like the beginning of a school year for children, where you go back and your first, like, month is review. Remember, let's go all the way back, let's explain it, and you're like, "Eh." and and some of the more diligent students are like, oh my goodness, we're still doing last year's work. Few and far between. But he says that's what we have to do. We have to go all the way back to the basic principles of the oracles of God, the ABCs. I have to go back because you can no longer track or apply or reason. And then he gives us this word that we've often used or heard. You need milk, not solid food. And then he clarifies what that means for everyone who lives on milk, is which I just assess the church here of the first century, here, you, everyone who lives on milk. What do I mean by that? But that you're unskilled in the word of righteousness. You're unskilled in it. Not that you can't read it, but you're unskilled in it. How do you apply it? How do you reason with it? How do you assess something as outrageous as, as a movement of Miley Cyrus? How do you assess that and fortify yourself against said nonsense and move in a biblical direction ethically? How do you do that? And it's more than reading a single verse. It's applying that verse, that idea, that theology, the web of ideas taught to you in Scripture. That's the skill in the word of righteousness that is required. Since he is a child, he moves on. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have had their powers of discernment. Do you see the skilled in the word goes with discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil? You see, the apostle is addressing our importance, you and I, our importance of achieving health in the Christian life through food rather than medicine. You see, he's saying essentially that we should be continuing with solid food, which will continue the state of our health, but instead we have lost our way, and we need someone to correctively give us medicine to reestablish our health in the faith. How does one become mature? Cast off his childlike experience in the world and culture. Cast off his childlike reasoning where it says, the Bible says that, uh, uh, it, it, that sex is to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in their marital covenant. 
And we have joined into culture to say we're okay with not doing it that way. And we find lots of pleasure and happiness in doing it our own way. How do we get back to a place of wisdom? How do we get back to a place of maturity? I end with these two texts. James 1.5. Hear this as I conclude. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Final text, James 3. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and notice this piece here, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Let us pray.